This is The Neutral Position, hosted by Nick Palmisciano. Bringing honesty and reason back into conversation. Here's your host, Nick Palmisciano. Unpleasant or repulsive, especially in appearance. Adjective. The word is ugly. No, we're not trying to describe your mom or that terrible spring break decision you made back in the day. We're talking about the most heinous, eye-bending, gag-inducing, dog-chew on the planet. We're talking about ugly chews. To you and me, ugly chews are nothing to look at. You see, when you take cowhide, clean it by hand, and sun-cure it with no chemicals, it doesn't look like a cute dog bone or rawhide, but it also doesn't sit in your dog's stomach forever or cause digestion issues. So while we see a hairy mess that we don't want to touch in any way, shape, or form, your dog, the natural predator that he or she is, yes, even Mitzi the toy poodle has some wolf DNA in there. That dog just sees gorgeous, delicious, healthy nature. So when you're at the pet store scanning the aisle or you're online ordering the next tasty morsel for your canine companion to gnaw on, are you buying that cute bone or that rubber toy for you or for your dog? Because in your dog's world, that pretty, chemical-filled, tied-in-an-adorable-bow treat is a 6 out of 10. Tops. It's fine. It'll do. But it doesn't inspire. Why? Because to your dog, it's not natural at all. It's foreign. It's manufactured. It's a frozen dinner when you really want a perfectly cooked steak. In short, it's just not ugly enough. So if you want to give your dog the experience of a lifetime while Dreamweaver plays and the world moves in glorious slow motion then get your dog an Ugly Chew at UglyChews.com. That's UglyChews.com. Hey guys, I'm Nick Palmashano, and this is The Neutral Position. I have a phenomenal guest today, Masood Rashan. Masood and I have known each other for a little while uh, because Masood is in the business of helping refugees amongst about a thousand other things. I'm going to let him introduce himself because he is essentially the most interesting man in the world, Masood. You already started this conversation with a lie. So, (laughs) Um, Masood Roshan, um, engineer by education um, and jack of all trades just because of life. Um, Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. That is the lamest possible introduction for your background. Like they're like, I mean, man, you've done a lot of stuff. How about we just start with, uh, I'll your... start with a quick anecdote for you. Then, oh, here regarding we go. Here that. we go. Um, I went into a meeting some years ago, uh, sitting across from a retired, um, Supreme commander of NATO. Um, sure. Um, that's a normal conversation. That's right, right. Yeah. Yeah. With two friends, mentors, business associates, and they, we were discussing some matters. And at that time he was running two banks and he, I have no friends running two banks, just in case, in case anyone was wondering, I have no friends running two banks. <laughs> that you know of fair. You might, yeah. are you, wait, are you running two banks? Nope. Luckily, okay, no, I have no I, friends running two banks. <laughs> and we sat across from each other and he, you know, his resume is legendary of course um and then i give my presentation and to my right is sitting one friend and mentor retired general officer to my left is a retired state department official senior guy the state department official is probably as close as to american aristocracy as you can get double-breasted suits Mm. perfect outfits every time his english is flawless and i finish and i get slapped in the back of the head by this 
platform. Like physic- physically, physically slapped on the back of the head? There's this legend sitting across from me going, uh, what's going on? And I look over and I won't name names. I'm like, hey, what? He goes, try that again. Now tell him everything. It's like, why? He goes, you, you really need to actually sell what you do. But I, he goes, no, no, no. This isn't a time to be humble. You, you got to <laughs> let people know what you're capable of, what you can do. And so it's always a challenge for me to go into details of some of the things because sometimes it's surreal even for me because it's just. Yeah, yeah. You've had a wild life. Like every time that we talk, you casually tell a story that is like the pinnacle of just about anyone else's life. It, like you have 43 books in you. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It just. Uh, Let's start with. How you grew up? I was born in um, 1979 in Kabul, Afghanistan. It's a nice place. I know, right? In those days, it was, right? Um, um, my first memory, and I didn't know this was a memory from then. Um, I was barely three years old, and I was on my father's shoulders uh, walking home, mm-hmm. um, and a Russian BMP, a Russian armored personnel carrier, pulled up next to us. This is... December of 79 is when the Russians invaded Afghanistan. And uh, this is 81, 82 timeline. Mm -hmm. And um, they're all over the country, hundreds and thousands of them. And this Russian BMP rolls past us. And just for giggles, the driver revs this engine up once. And dad said, you cringed. He says he revved it again. You cringed again. And he says the third time he revved it, he just started bawling, crying. I don't remember details, but I remember that moment, Mm. you know, um, and that's where my life started. Uh, My family, my father was educated in the West, my mother as well, both um, respect in the community. My mother was an educator. My father was a Boulder, Colorado economist, um, headed uh, the Ministry of Planning in Afghanistan at the time. Uh, My grandfathers were civil servants as well, but we weren't pro-communist. And... um, Therefore, we were blacklisted out of everything, and uh, we lost a lot of family. Uh, mm. The communists would create lists, and people would just disappear at night. And one day, we were notified that, hey, by somebody on the inside, that you guys are on the list tomorrow. Get out. Middle of the night, packed up, very traditional story, whatever you could carry in your hands, you know, about a dozen family members, you know, some stayed behind who knew that they weren't going to be disappeared or arrested and tortured. My grandfather had already been arrested and he was being tortured actively at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we booked out of there. Uh, nothing but the bags that we could carry. My mother was pregnant with my sister. I was the only child at the time and uh, made through the passes from Afghanistan into Pakistan. And keep in mind, this is 82. Fast forward to August of uh, 21, and here I am seeing it again. Yeah. Uh, so that's where my story started. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, go further into details, but that's really the origins. Um, and then we became refugees in Pakistan for a while. My father moved us here to the States where he was a PhD student in Vanderbilt. But he decided that he really wanted to do something about Afghanistan. And so he packed us back up, moved us back to Pakistan, stayed there as refugees until the Soviets left. He fought as a rebel uh, up until 1989 on the front lines. Um, Here's a U.S. educated economist, uh, but he's there on the front lines. Uh, But what was interesting is during that whole time, 
he and my mother both separately were very much into education. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they both had parallel programs. She worked on women's education and employment training uh, in Pakistan, Peshawar specifically. And my father did uh, overall general refugee education and vocational training. The idea was that if, not if, I should say when the Soviets left, uh, and I should just say Russians because in my opinion, there's really not much of a difference. There would be a need for skilled populations to go back into the country and rebuild mm. it. And uh, they worked aggressively pretty much their whole lives up until COVID happened and trying to educate Afghans uh, in trades and skills and, and fields wow. that would provide to the society. Were they physically in Afghanistan doing that work? Until uh, 89, they were not. Until 89, they were in Pakistan. This was the refugee population. Yep. I believe it was at 2 million refugees were mm -hmm. in Pakistan, Afghan refugees. And uh, the idea was to give them the trades. And my mom was interesting in her own special way because her program was very much loved by two very interesting people, uh, Princess Diana, who would go visit her programs, and at that time, Vice President Bush. Wow. And she would get thank you notes from him and medals and, and, and notes because of the stuff she was doing out there in the refugee camps. That's um, amazing. Uh, so yeah, we were there until 89. Uh, when the Soviets uh, left, my father stopped fighting. He's like, I won't fight fellow Afghans. I don't care what their political uh, uh, preferences are. Yeah. Uh, he then became the first minister of education for the post-communist government. Um, do you ever watch Charlie Wilson's War? Yeah. If you watch the end of that movie, and there's... Tom Hanks is Charlie Wilson sitting in that room asking for a million dollars for schools in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. That's actually more accurate than you could imagine because that's that thing happened. And that money was supposed to go to the ministry my father was running. And what my father had done at the time was he'd taken all of these religious schools in the borderlands that had been established for Afghan refugees. And he'd cut a deal with them. He says, listen, I have funds. Split your curriculum into two. One half is religion, but I'll give you materials for that, more moderate than what was sure. going to be taught. The other half is going to be reading, writing, arithmetic kind of subjects. And if you do those, I will give you funding and support. And that's where that money was going. And when that money dried up, there was other elements sitting on the sidelines. Of course, always are. And as soon as it dried up, yeah. that funding started like to that end um i, I kind of want to bring it to home for a second and one of the most frustrating things for me is americans when like we really don't understand how our country works or how the world works and you constantly hear anytime money goes anywhere else why are we giving money to x when we should be spending it at home and so you know as a person that has done a profound amount of good overseas, um, and and you know how important the public-private partnerships with our government are to any success. Like, there's nothing we can really do without government help at some point. Like you can you can help a micro, but you can't solve the problem unless USG is really on board in some form or fashion. Can you talk about that a little bit? just kind of like the disconnect that the average American has with the reality of, of what the world is. You know, um, you know, globalization is a bit of a bad word nowadays, but there's different versions of it, right? Um, 
and even humanitarian work has negative consequences in sure. many cases, right? Sure. Um, nowadays, you look at uh, long-term studies in Africa and other places where supplying things as basic as corn and grain to certain regions actually long-term damages their ability to be self-sufficient. But other ways, yeah, it's absolutely necessary. And I think a great historical example would be um, Japan and Germany, post-World War II, right? If there wasn't a concerted long-term U.S. effort post-World War II to help those nations out and to watch them and, and, and to tailor them into a new world, we wouldn't have some of our most powerful and most economically successful allies today. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, think about it, uh, how much benefit we've seen from our alliance with Japan. You know, Incredible. the 70s and 80s and microprocessors and the Walkman, right? Yep. And I mean, th those may seem like small things, but economically it's benefited the U.S. And, and to tell the, uh, to look at the average American and say, listen, there will be a benefit from this. It, it, it means a lot, but you can't blame the average American for not knowing that because they just, there's so much noise in, in society nowadays. But I believe if they were given those data points, they would very quickly understand what the benefits are. So one of the hits that, that always comes with Afghanistan and Pakistan and that region is that, because people compare this, they say, you know, hey, the investment in Germany, the investment in Japan, the investment in post-World War II Europe was critical. But the culture is different. It is not a Western culture in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And there, a thing that is often brought up is because the culture is different, that investment will not have the same effect. How do you, as an expert in that region, how do you feel about that assessment? Well, first, I mean, the short answer would be is Japanese culture wasn't like Western culture. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it all comes down to, it has nothing to do with culture. It has to do with what's complementary to the U.S., right? Um, if you look at Afghanistan, just geographically where it's located, you know, our interests and our uh, near-peer adversaries, closest to near-peer adversaries we have are China and Russia. Yep. They're right there. Mm -hmm. a, a nation that we've had a lot of challenge with for many years, Iran. Wonderful population, but a government that has Absolutely. really created yep. heartburn for, for the West Could for not have many said years. That yep. um, they're right there, right? And if you look at the last 40 years, how many of our challenges have popped up right there? Mm -hmm. You know, where's the center of mass there? Oh, yeah. You know, and you look at Pakistan and you look at nuclear proliferation, the Khan network. Yeah. That's on the other side of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, we can walk away from it. But it has less to do with quantity of money and support that goes into that country. It has more to do with the duration. And one of the challenges we have in the U.S., we think throwing more money in it would solve a problem faster. I truly believe that it should be less money for a longer term. And and that would hit the Americans, average American citizen harder or uh, less so than it would, you know, by throwing billions at it. Yeah. And would also reduce the chance for corruption to develop. Um, and any adversaries we have there will see a long-term American footprint there and say, you know what, we're going to give them some space. Culturally, guess what? One thing I have to explain and, uh, to, to people often is America's a melting pot. But guess what? So is Afghanistan. Mm. You have Pashtuns, you have Azaras, mm -hmm. Tajiks, Uzbeks. 
And the only time they've really had animosity between each other is when foreign elements or their own kings have tried to create problems with them within them. When you look compared to the US, there's a lot of similarities. They're not the same culture, not even close. Mm. But in terms of the independence, independent in terms of the variety of ethnicities, the geography and the environment, you know, you go to Kabul, it's like Colorado, right? You go to Jalalabad, it's sort of going to the southeast, right? Uh, you know, Georgia, Florida, yeah. you know, hot, humid, you yeah. know. You go to Helmand, Kandahar, it's like going to Arizona or some, or, or Nevada, right? Uh, so there's a lot of strange similarities that that a lot of people here, don't. They, they think desert and sand and rocks because that's what a lot of things they've been shown. But you go to Kunar and those places, mountains and, and evergreen trees and just beautiful terrain out there. Um, but again, culture-wise, you don't have to be the same, but in terms of similarities, there's a lot there. Uh, and and if we if 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 we had done this better 20 years ago, mm. we we would have learned that and seen where the complementary areas are between American culture and Afghan culture. And now it's time for the Warrior Rising Veteran Entrepreneur of the Week. Warrior Rising is the preeminent veteran entrepreneurship charity in the galaxy. Warrior Rising provides education, mentorship, grants, and more to veteran entrepreneurs. No one helps build more successful veterans than Warrior Rising. Each week, Warrior Rising selects one veteranpreneur to feature in our program. Here's this week's. Metal lasts. It endures. It hardens. It's shaped. It has a story. At War Metal Forge, every knife has a story embedded inside it from our nation's wars. Inside every knife is a piece of a historical artifact. Perhaps it was a tank from the Battle of the Bulge, or a jeep from Vietnam, or even bullets from the Revolutionary War. Each knife has a priceless piece of history forged deep inside of it. Every knife is forged by master knifesmith Justin Clapsaddle. And the mission is deeply personal to Clapsaddle, who himself served as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne and understands how important these artifacts are to the next generation. War Metal Forge doesn't simply make knives. They turn artifacts into heirlooms that last for generations. They give history a renewed birth. Do you want the highest quality knife on the market forged from the wars that shaped our very nation? War Metal Forge has got you covered. From hunting, whittling, cutting an apple in the coolest way possible, or whatever else you need your knife for, War Metal Forge is the only choice for you. Get your War Metal Forge knife today at warmetalforge.com. That's warmetalforge.com. Just because you opened this door, should we have gone to Afghanistan the way we did? That's a wonderful question. Um, <laughs> I wanted to start off easy. No, no, no. This is great. Um, so what I when I talk to people about this, I start off with our constitution here. You know, if somebody commits, if Jeffrey Dahmer had been found innocent by some technicality, right? Yeah, yeah. Double jeopardy, right? There was no way anybody could have gone after him again on that specific crime, sure. right? I mean, not the best of them, but also a very important fundamental thing, right? Yep. We're not going to violate the Constitution. Yep. In Afghanistan, especially within the Pashtun tribes, there are certain rules called Pashtun Wali. Because of the nature of the country and the dependence of the villages, they live on a certain book of rules, a certain code of conduct. And that's one of the big ones is within the Pashtun tribes, Pashtunwali. 
when 9-11 happened, totally understand the desire to go and, and, and get justice, right? Yes. But first, we got involved inside of a civil war. A civil war between various groups, and at that point, the, the victor was looking to be the Taliban. And then we asked the Taliban first, we did, hey, turn them over. Turn this group over to us. But the point I made regarding Pashtun Wali was is these guys had given safe haven to this person, mm. you know, bin Laden yep. and his cronies. And for them to violate that code because they had given him what's called melmastia. Uh, melma means guest. Um, it was difficult for them to violate that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And should we have gone? Yes. Could we have done it better? Yes. Should our follow-through have been different? Absolutely. Um, but at that time, you know, it was, we got hit. We need to make this right. And the other concern was you didn't know what else was out there. You know, what else were these folks planning and what other parts of the world? Of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know? Of course. Um, do you think, and again, this is, this is, you know, obviously you don't know, but do you think that the Taliban would have been a long-term adversary had we not pushed that conflict? I can tell you, actually I know this, once the Taliban were pretty much, they were broken after the initial invasion. Yep. I mean, that was yep. it. They were done. They approached the U.S. on multiple occasions and said, Hey, we want to talk. And a good friend of mine, and and I and I, I won't name him, but I want because he he worked at the White House. He he's he's a wonderful, wonderful man who's got a lot of experience both in uniform and out. He was one of the horse soldiers, mm -hmm. and he agreed with me. And he pushed this at the White House was, hey, we need to roll these guys back into society. Taliban wanted in. They were going to give up their uh, their support for. Al-Qaeda. And this was, of course, in the early days. Yeah. And they wanted to come in. That would have been it. Yeah. But there were certain members of the administration here that they've gone full cowboy. And I'm not talking about the president. I know that people think cowboy. I'm thinking President you know, Bush. But certain other elements around him sure. were like, we're going to go after him. We're going to wipe him off the face of the earth. And I believe those were the words that were used. Guess what? That didn't work. It never works. And those folks and, would have unless rolled. you're really willing to do that in which case we're not a moral country you know but at the same yeah. time is you can't wipe them off the face of the earth when they're sitting across the border and comfortably and we're on the other side of a border they're in pakistan we're sitting yeah. in afghanistan and going okay we're going to kill them all. but you can't because they're in pakistan you know they're yeah. just kind of waving at you going hey you know come yep. get me and we're not going to do that or you know we tried later on with drone strikes and stuff but by then you know these guys are living in the cities. You know, yeah. we're only doing yeah. the borderlands. Uh, so, anyways, we could have really nipped it in the bud by welcoming them back in, giving them the right deal. All they wanted was certain religious items included in the constitution. Ironically, they were already in the Afghan constitution. There really wasn't an issue there. But by pushing them away, what we did was we gave voice to their more extreme elements. How is it? And this is a constant, uh, you know, we've seen this in multiple wars throughout our history. There are, there are guys like you that know what is going on, that have a very good handle on the culture of everyone involved. 
And then there are politicians that seem to know nothing that are making the decisions. How do we close that gap? Like, how, how do we get to a point where we are not wasting American, Afghan, civilian lives in conflicts that, you know, and I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying the Afghan war should not have happened. Um, I think there definitely needed to be a, a response, but yes, you know, we pride ourselves on being a military that is very flexible. That, that, that's what we always say. We are the best military, not because of pure technological superiority, but because the individual team, squad, platoon can make decisions and, and adjust to the situation. And you're non-commission, uh, yeah. you know, it's yeah. uh, unlike almost any other that I've come across. Yeah. yeah. How does that not ever get to Washington? Because I feel like it doesn't in the way that it needs to, or that we're unwilling to, to package this information to the general population. Because you just explained this to me. I'm not an, I'm not an expert in Afghanistan. I, I, like I have done a lot of work with Afghanistan, but I'm not an expert the way you are. But you just explained this to me in a very simple way that I understand. I feel strongly that if it was packaged that way to the general population during the Afghan war, that we would have been able to make adjustments. How does that messaging not get to the American people? I guess if I were to answer it with one statement, I would say it's too many cooks in the pot ruined the stew. You know, and, and that's what happens here, right? Um, uh, let's start off with the military, right? You get the big green army in this case would be a, an example, right? All of a sudden, everybody wants the combat infantry badge. Sure. Your promotion depends on it. The general officer down to the colonel, down, all the way down to, to the young lieutenants, they want to have their turn. And when you take it away from SF and put it in front of the big green army, all of a sudden, we've got to throw more bodies at this. That's the solution. Mm. You know, the military industrial complex comes in and goes, yes. That's on the military. On the intel side, intelligence is supposed to be apolitical. But when you put political appointees in the intelligence pipeline, yes. You get another problem, yep. you know, uh, uh, Vice President Cheney's stories are legendary, you know, where we, he wasn't getting the intel. He would put a task force together to give him the intel that he wanted, WMDs being a classic example of that. Um, then you have politics, right? Uh, presidents want to flex their muscles, right? Um, and, and that whole pipeline just becomes corrupted, not because of one big evil person but because of just the nature of these institutions. Sure. Historically, you look at it times where it has worked. Um, it hasn't worked well, but it has worked Germany. We literally took, we kind of put a czar in charge of Germany, a civilian who was put in there to say, listen, deal with it. You're pretty much Germany's yours. You're an American, you're a government official, but it's yours. Deal with it. Whether it was judges and courts, they were managing it all. Now. Bad things still happen. That lots of, of Nazi war criminals got okay. because they were industrialists. They got yeah. let off because they had banked together because the country needed them or there was a relationship. Yep. That's right, right. But you know, make an omelet, got to break some eggs, right? And and so there was bad sides to it all. You know, Operation Paperclip being the most mm -hmm. infamous one, but it also created an ability for a singular person to see the whole picture and not have outside elements interfere. 
and say, okay, I'm going to do this. And the president was like, okay, all yours, yeah. right? But it did backfire one time. Bremer is a great example. Debothification, right? Yeah, terrible. Yeah. You know, you look at it and you scratch your head. You go, you know, <clears throat> or was it um, Patton had been told to denazify, right? And he was like, I'm not doing that. Um, you know, Patton's part of the rolling over in his grave. And if my history is right, he was asked and he did turn down. He goes, look, I'm going to have to fire every teacher, every police officer, because everybody had to sign up to the Nazi party yeah. in order to keep their jobs. So you went to Iraq and we debathified. Well, guess what? You have generations of civil it's servants. All, all the skilled people. Gone. Gone. And you didn't secure the weapons. Yeah. You didn't, you know. Uh, so you, it has its downsides. But it, well, it, in Afghanistan, sorry, to, to answer the question is, is that just too many cooks, not enough centralized effort, and then outside elements, mm. whether it's the Chinese, the Russians, or the Pakistanis. Again, wonderful population. I live some of my most unique and wonderful times, some of my best friends, you know, uh, but the government there had other interests and they were very good at manipulating American government policy to benefit their interests, which is their right. Sure. Um, and, and to them, strategic depth and other matters, water, uh, Pakistan, 70 plus percent depending on their agriculture for their mm -hmm. economy. Some of those rivers originate in Afghanistan. And, and, and that water is very valuable to them. And to have a government in Afghanistan that's beholden to the Pakistanis is very important to them because they're worried about India on the other side. Um, so, you know, they had a very effective lobbying effort here in Washington. And, and so all of these cooks got involved into that pie yeah. and the thing just rolled out of control. And of course, the most important ones, in 03, we forgot about Afghanistan for a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we sure did, because we were going to Iraq for... And Iraq was planned pre-9-11. That was, that was there. How do, you, how do you feel about that that war and how we ended up there? It, I can't speak too much of it because I wasn't as actively involved on the Iraq side, right? Um, but being in Washington, seeing the interest in there, in Iraq, and seeing the repercussions now, I mean, the Middle East is on fire. Yeah, because we, of a we, match we lit. And we did it, yeah. We did it. Yeah, as I strongly believe, as terrible as Saddam Hussein was, and he was absolutely a repugnant human being, he understood the region, and he controlled the region. And a, a strong, corrupt, but secular Iraq was probably the best thing for our security compared to... Iran now being the the power in the region and the Russian and Chinese influence now really rising to the top. I mean, and that's, again, I'm also not an expert in the Agreement area. with you yeah. uh, because, you know, they were a, a check to each other. And I think uh, at that time, George H.W. Bush recognized he it. He did. He was, I, I think, very highly of... Yeah, absolutely. The, the senior Bush. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and again, I don't believe the, the, the second Bush had a bad heart, like he had a mate, but I think he had the wrong advisors. Uh, you look at HW and he saw it, he goes, we're not gonna go into Baghdad. Mm -hmm. Desert Storm, like, okay, no, we're stopping. Cause he knew they were a check to Iran. My dad is a, my dad's a Vietnam vet. And he always looked to the team of, you know, Bush, um, Schwarzkopf, like that, that group, Powell. Yep as 
people that actually learned the lessons of Vietnam. Thank you. Yes. We yes. have a real coalition, a defined end state. We are going to remove the Iraq military from Kuwait and we are going to stop. Yeah. And everybody was like, you know, keep going, conquer. It is a very different thing to help defend a nation than it is to conquer another nation. Mm -hmm. Because you don't really want to die to hold territory that isn't yours, right? Like if it's like, hey, go up against the United States military in order to, you know, keep some oil fields for your government, that's not a thing that we're all the same. Like yeah. people are all this, no matter what everyone thinks, we, are, we have similar motivations. I don't want to die for that. But if it's like, hey, I'm coming to your house, I'm going to die for that. Yeah. I'm willing to die for that. So you, you're, you create a different fight. And I think the senior Bush and his cohort of generals understood that. And I really thought after that war that we had learned something. But it, it didn't take long to forget it. To Absolutely. Forget that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I had to, and I was an engineering student in college, but I, I had this wonderful history professor. Um, um, he passed recently, Dr. Clayton Laurie, a, mm. a wonderful author. And, um, he, you know, I took all of his classes, and, and you learned from his experiences and what he taught World War I, World War II. But you also learned how short of a memory we have in, 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 in not just us in the U.S., but around the world, the militaries. Yeah. Have. Uh, like you said, is this is Powell, Schwarzkopf, these guys remembered Vietnam and they were adamant about not repeating that mistake. Adamant. We had a couple of generals like that. Um, who, one of our, um, McMaster, mm -hmm. you know, he'd written about Vietnam yeah. and he, he tried to push aggressively against Afghanistan and Iraq going down that path. That but was... we had some general officers who considered themselves superstars yeah. and they were not hearing it. So McMaster's book was, I thought it was brilliant. Um, I thought he had the right doctrine, but then he came on and essentially almost reversed that doctrine with the Trump administration. Well, I think it is just, you, you have such a, as a president, you have such a potent presence. You know, as a general officer, when you've spent three plus decades coming up as the commander yep. in chief, yep. when the commander in chief has a policy, all you can do is execute on it. Do you think that's one of the reasons, you know, so we, we typically make sure that before somebody comes in as secretary of defense, there is a window where they are not serving. And um, do you think that was an issue in the Trump administration? I think it's been an issue in a few administrations. I mean, our current secretary of defense is a retired general officer. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it, it we're becoming more um, blasé about that wall. Distinction. Yeah. And, and when you look at some his, historical figures that have been really legendary in, in whether it's state or DOD or in the intelligence community, they've been people who weren't from that yeah, world. That's right. You know, it right. gives you a fresh view, but you don't always get that lucky, right? Yes. Um, uh, finding the right person or having them grow into the position. Yeah, and there's certainly – like I think there's certainly a value in having somebody that was a general officer, you know, they know who to talk to. They have the reps. They know every part of, of the government, military. But I also think there's value. So, you know, when a colonel walks into the room and somebody that's my age, you know, so some of my classmates are colonels. I think a couple of them are brigadier generals. But for the most part, my classmates are 05s, 
a, you know, about to do, about to be 06s. But like when an 06 walks into the room and they're 05s, their eyes are fixated on that person. And they're like, whatever that, like what that person says is important to them. Whereas, you know, I got out as a captain. I've been in business for ages. I don't look at it the same way. Yeah. That person starts talking. If they're saying something smart, I'm interested. But if I assess that this person is a dumbass, I don't care if they're a four-star general, an 06, or a captain. Like, I don't care. And I think that's important if you're going to be sec def or sec army. I think, I think you have to have, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't have military experience. I think you should. But I don't think you can be so enamored with the rank structure that you still feel like you're in. And I think, I think like these generals that haven't been gone that long, hey, that's the commander in chief. I've got to come to attention and salute, and that's what I have to do. I think you need somebody that's just like, hey, sir, this isn't right, sir. Like, yeah. This is the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to me, it's I was smiling when you were talking because I've I've lived both sides. I I was raised in a culture where elders and senior yeah. authority, like as was I. And you get to a point where I remember sitting down once and, and, and somebody, a general officer, retired general officer had said something in a meeting and I was like, you know, well, you know, he said it, it should be more. And this executive goes, no, just because he wore a star on his shoulder, yeah. it doesn't mean anything at this point. Is it right or is it wrong? Yeah. And, and the other challenge you come across is, you know, once they're a general officer, there's certain, you have to play certain politics yes. to get to that position. And that gives you a certain bias. You have a certain click you're connected. You have a chip on your shoulder about another click. Mm -hmm. So when you get put into a position of sex, death, or some of that sort, that is impossible for that not to bleed out onto your job. And, and how how do you deal with that? You know, do you, are you going to sabotage some amazing officer's career because you have an issue with them? Um, you see it all the time. Yeah, so some organization upsets you when you were in uniform, and now you're going to. You're gonna come back at them because of whatever, yeah. and it's just, it's difficult uh, to deal with that. And and we I think because of, and we have fought the longest war in the history of this country. Now, um, you've had this militarization of government that needs to get undone. But guess what? The military is not the only one that's guilty of issues right now. Of course, you know. Yeah, of course. I, yeah, I'll tell you is my experiences with certain development organizations is just mind boggling. Um, to tell you that. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers did more good in certain parts of the world than certain aid organizations, specifically USAID. I'll, I'll gladly die on that hill um, uh, it, because it's just this this whole corporate revolving door mixed with promotions and and, and conflict zones uh, has created this this monster that probably needs to be tamped down and and mm -hmm. uh, there needs to be house cleaning because it's not healthy right now. Uh, a lot of money gets thrown down the pipe and you don't see the results, both military and development side. Yeah. Do you worry about the military industrial complex? Yes. Yes. I, I came out as an engineer and I was going to go into that world. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's an amazing world. I mean, some of our greatest technologies have come out Absolutely. of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but at the same time. Tang. And at the ballpoint <laughs> pen. Velcro. Uh, there you go. Um, you know, it, it's just amazing things have come out of it. Uh, but at the same time, is that's when it's focused and managed properly. Mm. 
you know, they're happy to make bullets and sell them to you. Yep. But what you want them to do is go create fusion technology. Yeah. You know, the space program. Yeah. You know, it's just. I've long hoped that we would, you know, triple, quadruple, quintuple down on space because I. We're, the idea that we're going to get rid of the the military industrial complex is not realistic. It, it's too big. The only organi- the only uh, you know cabal, so to speak, that's probably more powerful is the medical industrial. complex. Oh, thank you. Oh boy, yes. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think I think the medical industrial complex is the most dangerous uh, to to the health of America. Hundred uh, percent. I I truly believe that there has to be a, a consideration given to. What sectors should be for profit? Yeah. You know, should we start saying, okay, this isn't, you know, I, a good, me- a wonderful mentor of mine who was a former political appointee at USA, a very senior person, a wonderful man. Um, his hope and belief, and he'd put his hat in the ring to go back as an appointee at aid was, hey, guess what? This is the last cycle of contracts to your corporations. We're going to give you one more round. Decision's already been made. There's no more. We're going to go to full nonprofit efforts, local corporate companies in that territory where we're going to be doing development work. I'm not giving you 70% of my budget or whatever the phenomenal number is yeah. for your overhead yeah. for you to like yeah. move some stuff around in some yeah. other foreign country. But I think it should apply to the healthcare industry, pharmaceuticals and others, but also to the military industrial complex. There should, needs yeah. to be a... Well, again, I'm not an expert in these areas, but I just like to think about things. And so to me, it's like we have kind of created – I don't have any problem with insurance companies, so to speak, but I have a problem with the government propping up of insurance companies. What I mean by that is if you want to have insurance, you should have insurance. But if the government's going to mandate that, for example, businesses have to provide insurance or you know pay a penalty or that people have to have insurance – I mean, shouldn't there be controls on insurance companies? So to me, it's like, if you're an insurance company, you should have to cover everything. Yep. You come up with a price, but that price cannot exceed X percentage of whatever the hospital is going to charge. And by the way, um, there's no more need for medical coding because you don't get to ignore any, you, you don't get to turn anything down. So if the doctor says this is what's happening, that's what you have to pay. And and that's it. Because right now, so hospitals have to overcharge because they don't get all of the money because they spend all this time arguing with so there's a whole industry of medical coders fighting medical coders on the other side in order cuz these guys don't want to pay. These guys need them to pay in order to exist. And so we have this whole industry that adds no value, that is just overhead on top of the overhead running this organization, whereas really it's like, I need a service, healthcare. We want to provide healthcare, but we have to go through this. And if we try to circumvent this, we get in trouble by this giant organization, the U.S. government, that says, you got to deal with these people that have a profit incentive that don't give a shit about whether or not you get healthy. In fact, they'd prefer that you die rather than have the, than deal with this very serious, expensive issue. I two thoughts. One very short one is that 
when there's human life involved, whether it's development, healthcare, or war, profit should not be in the picture anymore. I, I think you you put a because when you put it in front of a, ma, a, a somebody with a Excel sheet and a company that's demanding profits, and mm. then you you balance that out against human life. Mm. Unfortunately, money wins too often. Sure. You have to take that out of the equation. Sure. Um, and, and you almost can't even blame them because their job, you know, that's they're, right. they're, they're looking at, hey, I've got all these employees. If we don't eat, they don't eat. And I have to get rid of I have shareholders. Pam, who is yeah. sitting across the, you know, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I have a very personal story on this one. I'm happy to share it here because I think it needs to be talked about. Uh, when the Affordable Care Act went into effect, um, my rates went up. As did mine. Yeah. You know, and to me, I saw the percentage went up, and it was some because I was self-employed, and but it wasn't so much that I couldn't afford it. It hurt, but then I saw how many additional people were going to be cared for. It was mm. like twenty million or something. I was like, it's okay, but this is where it gets very interesting. I'm in Afghanistan. I am in a convoy of armored vehicles going to speak with the uh, one of the as people as people are from time right? to time. I'm sitting with a wonderful guy to my right, and we're working at bringing in uh, certain U.S. pharmaceutical solutions into Afghanistan as, as as a humanitarian venture. Actually, developing the domestic industry, mm -hmm. we weren't being funded by anybody. Just a couple of very wonderful business people that I knew, who who were in the defense space, and they're like, "No, we want to do this." I had knew the right people of the ministries in Afghanistan, and we were there to try to bring in. We're going to start with nutraceuticals. Um, I think um, our, our focus was. Um, uh, neonatal, uh, you know, for nutraceuticals, yeah. vitamins and stuff, because uh, 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 there was a real challenge in, in Afghanistan. And I'm in the car and I'm driving off to this meeting and, and Ed's sitting next to me and I get a call from my doctor. And he's got certain test results I'd taken before I left. And he's like, hey, um, I got your results. Can you come by the office? I'm like, oh, you're in Maryland. I'm in Kabul right now. So this debate goes back and forth a couple of times. He's like, I can't tell you your results. I was like, bad. He goes, no, no, not bad. So I call a friend now. Speaking of Pakistan, we grew up in Pakistan together, and he's an oncologist in Pittsburgh. And I was like, hey, buddy, call this doctor. Get these results because I am not yeah. coming back for a yeah. few weeks. So he calls the doctor, calls me up, and the worst bedside manner on the planet. He goes, you have cancer. I'm like, like I'm less thinking about the cancer, but thinking more about his bedside. I was like, dude, that's the worst bedside manner I've ever heard. He goes, it's not going to change my answer. Wow. It's like, how bad is it? He goes, yeah, if you're going to have one, this is the one to have. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, thank uh, you. All right. So now this is where my story with the healthcare industry is, it gets very interesting is come back to the States and thyroid cancer, it's gone into my lymph nodes. And I'm like, okay, this is serious. And I had a wonderful assistant work with me and she saved my life because she took care of all the lab stuff for me here before I even showed up. And Hopkins is minutes for me. Mm. Great institution, wonderful cancer uh, facilities. But I can't use Hopkins because the Affordable Care Act has just kicked in. And like you said, these accountants and lawyers on both sides are going in a full-blown lawsuit against each other on what? <sighs> on what to charge for different treatments. Mm. I'm like, okay, I have some savings. I want to go to a good hospital. So can I just pay? Like, I'm willing to put away my savings to yeah. pay. They're like, no, we can't take you. You're that insurance company's customer. Oh, my God. 
I'm like, you're serious? They're like, yeah. I was like, well, what if I drop my insurance? They do not do that. <laughs> like, they were wonderful in certain extents. They're like, don't take that chance. Just go find another hospital. I did. Everything turned out fine. That's ridiculous. But though. yeah, for like about six weeks, I'm battling this. I'm going, I want to go to the best hospital and it's right near me. Why can't I go? Yeah. And that's because these two organizations were fighting over how much they're going to charge probably from, for a piece of gauze. You know, I may be exaggerating, yeah. but I'm probably not. You're probably not. Um, and so I experienced this firsthand and blew my mind. You know, I was like, this is unbelievable. This shouldn't be how it is. I, I don't think that healthcare should be able to bankrupt a person. Yeah. Like, I, I just think, yeah. you know, no matter what your situation is, there should be a max that you, you should pay. Yeah. I don't mind. Like, listen, if I get cancer and you hit me with a, like, hey, by the end of cancer, the, you'll, you have to pay 50 grand or something. That's a, it's a significant amount of money. And you guys, you know, you doctors did great work, but that is an amount of money that like a person can recover from. But you essentially have medical debt you can't recover from. And in many cases, can't even clear with bankruptcy. No. So you're essentially saying for all time, you, a hardworking person with a regular job, are going to not be a contributing member of society because you were unlucky enough to get sick. And that's, that's where the absurdity of things comes from. And, I, and like you, I'm a middle of the road kind of guy. Like I am not the reason the show is neutral position is because I see value in lots of ideas and I don't see a party that subscribes to all of those ideas. No, no. But I, I'd say the most broken thing we have is our medical system. Yeah. And the second most broken and it's coming hard is our education system. I don't know. I, I feel like if we clean politics up a little bit, it would trickle down to all of these groups because my, my best solution for politics is take out private money, publicly oh, yeah. fund everybody's campaigns, watch how quickly the, the, uh, politics becomes. That was the, wor the worst Supreme Court decision of all time. Citizens United. Just, you know, I mean, I'm, I, it I was already. I shouldn't say that there were worse ones. You know, <laughs> uh, but but it it supercharged everything in recent history. Yeah, that yeah. is, you know, it, it's not like uh, Dred Scott bad. You know, it's not like <laughs> you know, truly truly awful. But it's uh, yeah. But, but the impact is so diverse. Yeah, I mean, you essentially with Citizens United, you essentially say rich people get to call the the, the shots. That's really what it did. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of land voting, money's voting now. Money is voting. You know, yes. we went away for, from from uh, aristocracy and everything because you had land, you got to vote. But now we've somehow managed to go back that way. But except for land, it's it, how many zeros you have your it, back. Except account. it's worse because at least with the land, you were living in America. Like Not only that, were, but you could tell who was the one you, with leverage. You, this is. Totally this secret. Is, this is who, Chinese money, Russian money, influencing our politics without any repercussions. And we've seen and, it firsthand. And I, I, honest to God, this to me, I don't know a single American that is like hardcore Citizens United was great. So this, this is the kind of thing where we should be able to have a constitutional amendment. This should be an easy constitutional amendment. Hey, let's take big money out of it. Yeah. The problem is because of Citizens United, you can essentially lobby these people and keep that off the table. And it's not incendiary enough to the average voter that 
where it's like, you know, we have to change this because it's like, oh, yeah, well, money always has been impossible. That's true. But they at least had to work around it before. Yeah. Now it's direct. It's like, yeah. hey, you know, we're a super PAC, yeah. so we can have infinite money to fight whatever reasonable thing is out there that is good for me and you, but maybe not good for the 0.1 of 1%. FTX being a perfect example. Yeah. You know, SBF goes out there, puts out tons of money overtly and through uh, super PACs. And when investigations started, and I just heard this yesterday, that apparently a couple of investigations were going some time ago and folks in government were like, he's a good guy. We like him. Take it easy. And of course, when you're a political appointee at, say, DOJ, you're like, yeah, okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, they're being vouched for, right? Um, and guess what? How many people lost how much? Yeah, I mean, just bankrupted. It just ruined. Uh, and it, 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 I don't think you could give enough of a punishment to somebody like that no. because of how many people, Enron and all these guys. Yeah, these you know? guys, they get away with it. They, yeah. they don't somehow, I mean, if I broke into your house and stole 10 grand, I'm screwed. Yeah. But if I steal billions of dollars from thousands of people and ruin their lives, I'm going to do 10 years or something? Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? One of the greatest opportunities to break the back of big money was uh, after the 08 collapse. Well, you know, you bail out the banks, but you could have put in safeguards. All kinds of safeguards. The opportunity was yeah. there, but it wasn't done. No, because they don't want, they're, they're friends. Yeah. The amount of people in administrations that come from finance and then they go back into finance. Yeah. How many members of administration want to be in finance? You know, want to be the lawyer for, you know, yeah. the, some big investment yeah, and, fund. and the whole idea is like, hey, you know, we've learned from this. We won't do it again. But we're literally doing it again. Like when they just announced like, you know, uh, a few years ago, the reintroduction in earnest of these variable arm mortgages with balloons. I'm like, are you like we just did? That wasn't like in the 60s. That was. Seven, eight years ago, we're not even talking about the distant past and a whole new generation of people are buying these because they can't afford houses, you know, because house prices have gone up while real wages have not. And also you have institutional buyers buying, which I think is another thing that needs to be addressed. I don't think institutional organizations should be able to buy up more than X number of private homes because we're essentially creating like a fief, you know, old school society of like the king owns the land and everybody gets to and rent the kings from the are land. money now. And the kings are money. Yeah. And, I, and a lot of foreign money. Absolutely. Um, uh, I think Australia just put in some rules because so many Chinese corporations were coming in and buying property in Australia. Yeah. And they're like, locals can't afford homes anymore. Yeah. Stop, right? Um, and, and it's across the board here. And, and um, I think we should look at stuff like that. Well, I, I think there should be bonuses for people that invest in the community. Agreed. Agreed. You know, you know, uh, write-offs, protections. Absolutely. Uh, and this uh, deglobalization that's starting to happen is, is starting to go in that direction. I, I try to tell people, like, I believe that if we continue on this path, that rubber band snaps back. And mm -hmm. uh, either healthcare, banks, and others slow down now or the reaction is going to be far more vicious against them at some point yeah you can't continue to stretch this rubber band before it, it says enough it, and the 
the problem with allowing these mega institutions is like I'll, I'll, I can even speak to it from a business person. You know, in I think I got my first business loan in like 08, something like that. And at that time, that was the, the time of like free money or whatever. And so I asked for like a $50,000 loan. They gave me a hundred. Um, but while I don't necessarily agree with that decision, you know, I mean, it worked out, but while I don't necessarily agree with how free that was, um, there was like a real sit down and the banker had real authority to kind of make a decision. It was like, he, he was like, all right, like you went to Duke, like talk about that and how that affects this. And I had to really make a business case to him. And even though maybe our numbers weren't there yet, he made the bet that I was going to win. And, and he won as a result. And we had lots of business together. That isn't available to bankers anymore because the government came down so hard after the mortgage crisis that all money tightened up. Yeah. So the only people that could really get access to money are the extremely wealthy individuals that already have money. And then people like me, um, like it became harder. Everything became harder. Yeah. Huh. And not in a good way, like way too far the other direction. And the same banker that I had worked with multiple times, you know, to come up with great solutions to grow the business now was saying, hey, I can't do anything. If the numbers are off by like a tenth of a percent, I can't say yes. The computer tells them you can't. The can. computer says no. Yeah. And, and this is where like, you know, government intervention, it makes me nervous, but it's also necessary in, in situations. Yeah. And jumping to like college, the intention of backing student loans was a good one. It was like, hey, listen, right now only, you know, it's hard for some people to go to college. So we're going to back student loans. Great. That sounds good. Well, now all of a sudden, because money is essentially available to everyone, the prices are now whatever they want them to be. They're allowed to increase a certain amount every year, and they all do. So kids now are leaving schools, if you go to like a decent private school, like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, you're, that's so hard to pay back. And it's making college not worth it. And I think that there will be a significant drop off in people going to college. I believe already now you're seeing more women graduate than men. 60-40 now. Is that the number? 60-40. Phenomenal. Yep. But because of that, you're, you're also going to have this generation right now of people that are saddled with paying one to $2,000 a month for 30 years. You got to make real money to like, you know, and, it's a, and that's another one where you can't get out of it with bankruptcy. They've seen to it. Yeah, yeah. But, but there's somebody... But who is that protecting? It's not protecting American citizens. Because no. nobody wants to declare bankruptcy, no matter what people think. Like people, you know, you don't want, if you can make the payments, they don't let you declare bankruptcy. But if, man, if you're, if you have a $200,000 degree and you're not making ends meet and they're just saddling you with debt upon debt upon debt, 
and making it very easy. And the government is protecting the lender and not the citizen. This is where it's like, this is a real problem. And everyone's, you know, like this administration is trying to, you know, let people off 10 grand or whatever. Like, I really don't even care about that. Fine, do it, don't do it, doesn't matter. But the core issue You're not solving the problem. You're putting a Band-Aid on The core issue is you're letting people with no credit history take out exorbitant amounts of money. If I went and said, hey, I want to get a $200,000 loan for a business, (laughs) as a guy that has had three successful businesses, I have to prove like, hey, where'd you get this $7,000 check? Who's this from? What, you know, like, did somebody put this into your account just to pump up your numbers? Like, I have to... You have to write memorandums for this stuff. But not for student loans. But an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old can say, I want two hundred thousand dollars of debt yeah. to go to, you know, the University of Virginia. And, and everybody's like, Yeah, sounds good. You come to the same thing with healthcare and everything else. Is it's an industry that is now working for profit and growth. And it's supercharged by banks that are trying to pump student loans through there to lock down these kids. Yeah for decades and make hundreds of thousands of dollars in my time as an undergrad i saw those college and when i started i could pay for semesters of classes by working a couple part-time jobs absolutely by the time i was done with graduate school Mm -hmm. that wasn't the case anymore yeah it was impossible at a local state school you couldn't do it anymore in a very short time it had dramatically changed and that was partially because of what you're talking about, but also because state governments decide, hey, guess what? I'm gonna take some money that's meant for this university. I'm gonna go direct it somewhere else. Yeah. You know, uh, we're gonna reduce taxes because that's gonna grow a business, trickle down, you yeah. know? But that tax is gonna hit the schools. So the kids are gonna have to give more tuition because we're not giving enough money to the schools. And, and again, this is where there are solutions, but nobody wants to impose. Just say, hey, listen, the government's gonna back loans up to 15 grand a yeah. year. That's it. After that, you've got to figure it out. Well, that means that I'm not going to be able to go to X, Y, or Z school. I get it. And that's unfair in life, but life is unfair. But I promise that you owing $60,000 at the end of four years is better for you than owing $250,000 in 99.9% of all cases. And you know, you can always go to grad school at one of these other places once you've established yourself. Like there's so many. I would add two other things to that. One would be is that kids coming out of high school, especially with families who may not have gone to college before um, or those who have this belief of college that was baby boomer beliefs, you mm-hmm. know, things have shifted. They don't understand that. Needs to be an education for kids. Yeah. Okay, what degree do you want to go to? Do you know what that's worth, really? So, okay, you're going to go become a literature graduate. Yeah. You're going to take out 100, 150,000 in loans over the next four years to get a literature degree. What's your career after that? Yeah. Do you know what the income on that career is? Yep. Do you know what impact it's going to have on you if you have loans to pay for that? Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many people I knew in my program because I was an engineering student. But we have general foundation requirements, right? And you'd have these young kids coming in and they'd get degrees in wonderful fields. But they would, and I'll say they worked at Best Buy before and during college. Yeah. When they got out, they went back to Best Buy. Yeah. 
because what are you going to do with some of these degrees? Well, and, and that's the other thing too is, and I, I do think that we've conditioned, and, and I also want to say that this show is all over the map and I'm enjoying it. So, um, but we can come screeching back. To, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you really want to be a writer, you got to write. Yeah. If you want, like, you know, the people are sitting around us in this room, if you want to be a filmmaker, like I'm not yeah. saying film school isn't valuable. No. Like, there are definitely techniques and whatnot you'll learn there. Yeah. But if the choice is I spend a hundred thousand dollars going to film school or invest $12,000 in equipment and start shooting film. I guarantee the kid that shoots film for four years, edits film for four years on his own, trying to make money, doing side projects, I guarantee that kid is better in four years than the kid who went to film school. Like yeah. I, I truly believe that because I've seen it yeah. over and over again. A hundred percent. And it's the drive, it's the education you get from practical experience. All of those things come together. The fear of of putting food on the table yeah. is an incredible driver <laughs> of performance. I got into um, government contracting because when I finished undergrad in college, it was 2003. And I wanted to do something for the country. Mm -hmm. And I'd become a citizen, naturalized citizen in 2002. And my dream had always been to work at Lockheed. The Blackbird is like sure. my, like yeah. I yeah, was yeah. my dream plane. Yeah. I like how oh, I'm a mechanical. Dream. I'm like I'm gonna go work for Lockheed, Lockheed Northrop. Nobody's paying attention to me. Yeah. Finally, I had an interview with another government organization, and um, they were wonderful. Two guys. They're talking to me. They're like, "Listen, we don't have the budgets. We 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 like your background, your experience, but if we gave you a job, we'd have to give you a clearance. And you take that clearance and you go work for Northrop. I was like, no, no, I already tried Northrop. They're they're not even, you know, kids who were barely passing were getting jobs at Northrop. Like, well, you have to understand, your, it's your name. It's like, what do you mean it's my name? Like, I'm so, like, thinking yeah. this is an equal opportunity country. He goes, they're worried that you're not going to get a clearance. They have to invest money into you mm. to get you a clearance. And if you don't, they're stuck with you. Yeah. And they're going to let you go, but they've already spent a ton of money trying to get you a clearance. Yeah. You come to work for us, we'll give you a clearance, but then you're going to quit because they can pay you way more than we can. And and so I came out of that and going, okay, like, what do I do now? I just spent four years, student loans. Yeah. Um. So I went, it took me about almost a year to find a job. I went to the nuclear energy industry, but I'm in a cubicle with a white noise machine. And here I'm the guy who's grown up overseas, traveled in lots of interesting places. Um, I was an adventure racer at the time, in a mountain bike race and stuff. So I was like, ah, this, this isn't for me. Like, I got to find a different way. But how do I get into the world where I get to travel? The university, um, my dad calls me. And he's, this is 2006. Um, the administration had asked him to get Karzai elected. He'd become Karzai's campaign manager. Karzai was not going to win. He had no chance. And... Dad calls me up, goes, hey, you know, I'm in my cubicle. He goes, how's it going? I'm like, mm, fine. He goes, no, it's not. Is it? Mom and yeah, dad, yeah. you know, they know you. He's like, you thought about grad school? He's like, yeah. He goes, you want to go back? He goes, actually, I got a call from one of my college professors. I am thinking about it. He goes, well, why don't you do that and go see if you can get me some money so I can build another school because I'm tired of cars. I'm tired of these people. This is going to fail. This is 2006. He already knows. Mm -hmm. We're on the wrong path. I'm like, I don't know anything about fundraising or Washington. And he goes, figure it out. Click. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. So I went back to grad school. 
and I started going to Washington. But what what ended up happening is we're talking about, you know, getting food on your plate really is, is you know, all of a sudden, like, I'm, I, I, grad school started sending me off to Pakistan and Peru for a recovery operations and disaster relief work because my engineering department was working with a, a joint center for the technologies department and, and the World Bank and others. And they're like, you know your way around the world, go babysit a bunch of these scientists, right? Get your research done. And then I'm in Washington trying to gather money for the school and I had a talent for it. All of a sudden, within a few months, I had $1.6 million raised. Mm -hmm. I went to USAID. They weren't giving me the time of day. They're like, oh, we gave all our money to these two corporations. See if you can talk to them, right? I, I went to another USAID office and they were like, you don't meet our burn rates. You're not big enough for us. Mm. We have to spend this money fast enough. You're not going to do it. And we don't believe you can. Okay. So I got private money and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute. I figured out Washington, figuring it out. I'm traveling the world. How can I put this stuff together? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go start a company. I'm going to do this myself. And that fear of putting food on the table, oh, yeah. right? Uh, so I'd work part-time job with one of my uncle's surveying companies. And then I'd, I'd re at weekends and a couple of days a week between grad classes. Then two days a week, I'd come into Washington. I'd go like wine and dine people that I wanted to like get to know. And it was terrifying because you're like, where's my first work going to come from? Yeah. Oh, how, I get, I get how, how am I going to do this? I understand. And, and it was just, and you're just, you're hustling. You're yep. hustling. You're just paying the minimum on a credit card. You're paying the minimum yep. bills just so you can, you're like, I'm going to do this. And it's terrifying, but it's a hell of a lesson. I, I've told this story. I'm not going to get into, because we've, we're going to have to wrap up because I've had you here for a long time. I don't even know how much time is passed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't either. I don't either. But, um, you know, when I started Ranger Up, when I jumped into it full time, my worst moment, I was a single dad with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. Oh. I was renting two rooms from my buddy in his house, one for the kids, one for me. I had $57,000 of credit card debt, all tied to the company. Uh, and I had $1,300 in my bank account. And I told myself that if I didn't have more money than that in a month, that I was gonna have to get a second job and kind of to keep this thing working. And I worked my ass off that month. Like, I, I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life. And at the end of that month, I like phew, opened up the bank account and I had $1,357. And it was, I know it sounds silly, but it was like every other month for the last 18 months, it had just gradually gotten worse and worse. And it was $57 better. And probably nothing meaningful had happened, but that was like the beginning of success. And the fear of how do I do this was extremely heavy. Nine hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, that was the first payment I got. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 huge. Yeah. Earning it is huge. Yeah, you're like what I was thinking was of doing has turned something back. Yes, I just need to do it a few thousand times more. Yep, and yep. that was it. Yeah. it was, you know, it just, it, it's different, but it's necessary. And I think also public service. I think young people need to come out of school and uh, instead of going to college, they need to get an opportunity to work with fellow Americans. You know, whether it's park service, you're looking at the working at the local school, doesn't matter. I, I think we've just been separated, divide and conquer by extreme elements. 100%. And, and just people need to get to know each other again. Yeah. 
It's, yep. it's just, you know, and guess what? Public service should also be able to write off your debts and your student loans. I agree. I agree. Uh, it's, it's very important. Imagine a media agency that can make a documentary that qualifies for Academy Award voting. Imagine another that created a billboard charting music video for Five for Fighting. Imagine another that has raised so much money for nonprofits in its first year working on the classy.org platform that at the end of the year, it was named as only the second marketing partner in Classy's history. Imagine another firm that can cover your events anywhere on planet Earth and provide a compelling series of videos about those events immediately and to your needs. And imagine another still that can help your e-commerce business take it to the next level. Now imagine that they're all the same business, Diesel Jack Media. Some of you might be saying, hey, Nick, isn't that your company? And to that I answer, can a company like Diesel Jack Media really be owned? Or can it merely be coaxed out like a beautiful butterfly on a spring day? As you listen to this podcast that, by the way, Diesel Jack Media created, you may be asking yourself, what's our secret? It's simple. We try not to suck. Sounds easy, right? It should be. But somehow, marketing companies and media agencies always seem to get it wrong. You see, we don't make PowerPoints about doing work. We do the work because we like the work. And if one of our ideas doesn't work, you know what we do? We try another one again and again and again until our ideas start to work. Because not quitting until it's right is at the heart of not sucking. And as previously mentioned, that's what we try not to do here. Diesel Jack Media, we try not to suck. Visit us at dieseljackmedia.com. That is dieseljackmedia.com. Very quickly kind of close out. So, you know, I haven't mentioned this on the show yet, but uh, Masood is is the guy that is the, uh, the, the brainchild, the master conductor of the safe houses that save our allies run in, in Afghanistan. And, you know, we've worked with others, um, but you've just done a tremendous job making sure people are safe and making sure that everything is as good as it can be given the situation. And I wanted to at least give you a quick chance to talk about why you do that, how you got into it, and, um, and just in general, your service, you know, to the world. I, um, I'd worked to humanitarian work. I, I grew up in it, as you, as you heard, yep. with my family. Uh, and my sisters are amazing. My brother, they've all very accomplished, all younger than me, and just amazing stuff. Uh, education, development work in Africa and, and South Asia. Um, so I was always, uh, and so when I started, well, as I said, with this, uh, fundraising for the school for my father, I just kept doing different humanitarian work as, as, uh, along with my for-profit ventures. Um, but by 2018, I was done. I was, it, it wears you out, especially when you're sort of a small operation. It just, everybody's out to just somehow knock you out off your feet. And, mm -hmm. and you can only see so much tragedy before it starts to impact you. So by 18, I was done. And then, you know, 2021, August, that morning happens, you know, COVID dealing with all of that, you know, my family and, and taking care of my parents through during that time. And the first call I get, I, I actually, my phone's beeping on a Saturday morning and, and it's my siblings and cousins. And we have some distant relatives who are stuck. Like, can you help with this? 
you know, we've got a group going, let's see if we can get him out. And then um, my sister contacts me separately. She's trying to, her and her fiance now husband are trying to get this couple out. And by the way, they became famous because there was a wonderful article written on, on, on how they got out. And we're trying to negotiate them through the streets of Kabul and out to the airport. And because of all the logistics and transport work I'd done, I started getting calls from companies, nonprofits and all of that. And I'm going, I'm, I left this world. I got to I <laughs> You get, never leave. Yeah, that's right. You pull me back in. <laughs> um, so long answer to your question is, is that all of a sudden I'm sitting there going, okay, I have these abilities and I'm not going to look back on this and say, oh, I ran away from it. And I just went head first into it. I mean, I just went deep. Um, yeah. And as a refugee, I was, after a few days of the airport, I was actually in um, the Willard, at the Willard when the bombing happened. Mm. Uh, your associate, if I can name him, Daniel, yeah. who is the one who brought us all together. Mm. Um, yeah, he's a good guy. Uh, he has, he, I, you know, he was sitting near me and we were all sort of shaken. And But 24 hours before that, I had stopped moving people to the airport. I was moving them via other routes to help them get out. All people who we believed were qualified, just yeah, like course, you folks. Of course, of um, and, and I had contacts and friends and people in Pakistan. I had people in Afghanistan. I had people in other places, Turkey. And, and so I just call these people up and, and I was like, hey, can you, they're all like, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so by the time we got connected, I was winding back down. I was like, okay, there's more established professional organizations. There's systems now, it's not chaotic. They're, they can do a better job, a more responsible job at this. And But I had these facilities and, and you guys needed them. And I was like, well, why would I shut it down? Let me just yeah. help another group out. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and you just, you know, you have the skill set. why not use it? Because I don't, I don't ever want to look back and say I could have done a little bit more. I, I get it. I... And, and, and to your credit and your organization and everybody, you gave me your trust and thank you for that. And and I was happy to be able to take what I'd built and use it one more time. Um, um, but none of you had to do the things you've been doing and and, um, and we, you continue to do so. Well, and right, from right. a refugee, thank you. Right, right back at you. you know. Right back at you. All right, now the serious questions. Okay. What is the toughest animal you think you could defeat in hand-to-hand -hand combat? Oh. No weapons, just mano a mano. I've lost a fight against a peacock, so I don't know. The number's <laughs> going to be pretty how, small. How do you lose a fight against a peacock? I mean, it's a bit of a story. I mean, I'm happy to tell it. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, uh, the toughest animal I think I could beat in hand to hand, a healthy animal. I don't know. Coyote? Okay. All right. We've had, I think that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable. I'm an engineer, answer. so I got to come up with a practical answer. That's a practical answer. Some people have been very uh, aggressive with what they think they could take. And and it's like, I don't think you've seen these animals. <laughs> like, like, I'm not going up against a wolverine because <laughs> I, I know I'll know, lose, you know? But like, you know, uh, like have animals. Have you seen that, a pissed off a rooster with a claw? Yeah. Yeah, they're I, vicious. Like, I, I still think I'd come out on top, but but like it'll hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gonna be nasty. Yeah, it'll hurt. Yeah. Like animals have weird strength. I'm not. They're strong. They're durable. <laughs> yeah. They can withstand a lot more pain. 
you know, and they have wet, like our wet, I'm sure we had claws at some point. But yeah, like, right. You know, <laughs> you know. I was at the Garden of the Gods once and they said, you know, look out for mountain lions. And I'm thinking, you know, mountain lions, you know, 60, 70 yeah. pounds, which yeah. still can kill you, right? Yeah. And then you see pictures of yeah. some of them. Oh, yeah. And they're like jacked. Yeah, you're, you're like, like no. Yeah, that I would no. have had no chance. <laughs> I'm doomed. Like that dude, they're like, oh yeah, he killed a mountain lion. Remember that story? Have that, you seen the picture? Yeah, it's like That's a the juvenile. It's, like, it's like a juvenile, you know. It's like and apparently it was sick. It's like this big. It's like, come on, man. That's not a mountain lion. Yeah. Like, no, you know, no, no, to no. me, it's like Hey, I have two dogs and they're, you know, sizable dogs, you know, 60, 70 pounds. Yeah. yeah. I know if they got pissed. It'd be hard. It'd be hard. <laughs> like, It'd no, be hard. it's not going to end well. It'd be hard. All right. Your mind is going to get wiped out and you're going to restart at the age of 18. You only get to keep the knowledge of one skill. What is it? Networking. Okay. That tell us why. I just want to leave it at that. Like, Yeah. Yeah, it's just networking. Like networking. Just, yeah. Okay. The same guy who slapped me in the back of the head taught me how to network. He could walk from one end of a room to the other, and you didn't think he stopped. By the end, the other end of the room, he'd walk up. He goes, Masood, okay, see that guy over there? Yeah. Yeah, he's so-and-so. Go talk to him. See that guy over there? This is what you're going to talk to him about. I'm like, how did you do that? Yeah. I'm the worst just, networker on planet Earth. Yeah. I'm yeah. truly terrible. Like, like, I try to turn it off now because I'm just yeah. burned out. But, like, when I turn it on, it's just I'm, I'm just unstoppable. Um. You can you're that you're a god for a day, and you only get one wish, so to speak, and that wish has to be to help America improve. What is the one thing you're going to change with that godlike power? Take money out of politics. The one time I believe trickle down would work. I like it. I like it. Is it hard to deal with? you know, the racism or jingoism of being from an Afghan background. And as an example, Kelsey has dressed up for every other guest, but today she's dressed like a hobo. And I have to think that it's the inherent racism that she carries with her for, one for, for Afghans. Uh, how do you, I feel like she focused on her hair today to balance it out. And I'm okay with that. That hair is amazing. You caught me on an off day. I'm not. I'm <laughs> saying it's just the hair. Like, it's a. It's the personality that shines more than she, the outfit. She's wearing her United Nations of Coast Guard shirt today. I want my my university is called University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and we had oh, a lot wow. of funny. That's a lot of letters. Acronyms that for a, that title. That is okay? a lot of letters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, well. Masood, it has been an honor to have you on today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been mutual. I truly have no idea how long we spoke for. I think this is by far our longest show. Oh boy! <laughs> and uh, but but I enjoyed it the whole time. So uh, you know, it's three o'clock. So hopefully others. Oh boy, uh, Hollywood, stay out of the back. I'm trying to close this show. <laughs> Sorry, trying to close this show. Now we have to do it's this. not about you, Hollywood. <laughs> it's not about you, man. First, we've got. Kelsey's racism, and then we've got Hollywood interjecting, and I'm just trying to close out the she, show. Would she, you like Dan to tell a joke now. <laughs> it would no, be more Dan, I need today. you to I need you to stay out of this one just <laughs> just for a while. We don't need a repeat of Joke Gate. <laughs> <laughs>
Masood, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank You're you welcome back me. anytime. Thank you so much, and thanks for everything that you do for the world and for refugees. Uh, listen, thanks to folks like you, uh, none of the things I've done would have been possible. And uh, just so you know, Masood and I once killed the entire Poseidon at the old Ebbett Grill, which I have to tell you is no joke. And that we was could a special have had moment. a little bit more. I think we could have. I still had some I space. Think we, like a Poseidon and maybe like a Neptune on the side. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's seals. There's ears you're pricking right now. Going, <laughs> Is there a trident coming? Thanks, man. I well, appreciate it. Thank you it. for having I me. It's been a pleasure. It.